Hey everybody, welcome to episode seven, count them seven, of How's That Day. Man, we got here fast. It's a culture rundown with Tom and Phil. I'm Phil Wiedenheft, your host, here to introduce you to my co-host, Mr. Thomas James Bond. Hello, Tom. Hello, hello, how are you? Each week, Tom and I get together to chat about how our days have been going, what we've been watching, reading, thinking about, listening to, you know, whatever. And together we work through our thoughts on the, the pop culture and stuff going on in our life and just kind of keep our conversations going. I'll start this week the exact same way I start every week. Tom, how's that day? Phil, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, last week, as listeners know, had some major cat drama again and just had a, a busy day uh today's been so good i it, it's been sunny and 75 for the last 30 hours i had uh sex with multiple women um who all liked me which is rare like as a person and uh i yeah I'm like liked my my penis and then Ooh. i i bought a scratch off ticket and i won Three thousand dollars and this really limited edition Suspiria Blu-ray on the on the scratch off. It was really weird. Like the convenience store was just clerk was like, "Here you go, man. You won this Blu-ray." I was like, "Oh, I really want that." Wow, you should uh, go to the ocean and see if you can walk on water, my friend. I did. I did. I walked on water. It was really cool. Then you're just having a hell of a day, man. A hell of a day since the last time we talked. Yeah. The last time we talked, which was a week ago, but in our time, it was five minutes ago because I am leaving for work tomorrow. It is still mid-April. We are recording these in advance, so no, did not win a scratch-off Blu-ray of Suspiria. Uh, no, it is dark out. The sun did set, yeah. and nobody had sex with me, and nobody likes my penis. Yeah, I, it was the part about them liking you as a person that I didn't believe. Yeah. We, um, we also had some technical difficulties. And I, I'm so sad that it's lost to time. But Phil was complimenting my penis, which really made me feel happy. And then what'd you say at the very end of it that just tickled me pink? You got a good dick, kid. <laughs> you got a good dick, kid. <laughs> it made me so happy. I'm so sad that that conversation won't be available to people to listen. It's just like the nicest father-son chat hey, you got a good dick kid go get him tiger well i mean to be technical the conversation is lost i still have my side of it we just you know we don't have your side unfortunately anymore so yeah. <laughs> you should just yeah i, put I can that i can, the, I can in somehow the, maybe if it so. works I'll, I'll still insert a part of our dick conversation in here somewhere we'll, we'll see if i can make that happen can you just yeah just throw in your uh, little pep talk at the end yeah That'd really make me happy yeah tom was talking about how his penis was complimented and you know and then he made a a self-deprecating joke, which he always does, and he shouldn't because he's a great human being. And I was telling him he's a great human being with a no. with a great dick, a great dick, and he should be proud of that dick. And you know, he should use it, and you know, just think of it as a a thing of power. You know, and I started talking. I, I, I gave oh. a laundry list of how um, uh, you know amazing synonyms about how great a dick you have. Yeah, it was really thoughtful. Maybe that's why we had technical difficulties because my computer started vomiting. So now, yeah, but, you, you, know, Phil, you just needed to hear it you again. You say use that dick. Yeah, you say use that dick. I use that dick every single day to go pee-pee. Yeah, I... I uh, I'm so sorry. I just I couldn't think of anything. I ran out. I was like, uh... I'm yeah. so, I'm I, so me sorry. Too. Me too. I was too. just hoping you would get mad at me. Yeah, I pee. I pee, okay, everybody? Ugh. Truth's out. Ugh. We're recording these in advance because I, I won't be back until mid-May, and then we will have fresh new episodes. So if uh, 
if something happened, like the Mueller investigation ended and we would talk, well, we may have to do like an emergency pod if that happens. But if something crazy has happened between like April 19th and May 12th, and we haven't talked about it, even though the episodes have come out, it's because we're doing this in advance. Yeah. So Tom is off to go do some secret, top secret, very exciting, very cool can't wait to talk about it at a later date, but it's kind of under wraps right now. But right, going off to do a, a really cool thing for a little while. So we are taping ahead of time because we didn't want to run out of it. We didn't want to take a break. We didn't want to leave you guys content free. So we recruiting, we're recording this early. And today, on today's episode, we're going to talk about Atlanta. And you know, remember that we're only mid-April, so we have not finished the season. I have only seen up to episode seven, and Tom has only seen up to episode six. So we're going to discuss those. So if you've seen those episodes and you know want to listen to it, that's where we're going to be at. So we're not going to be able to talk about the whole show, even though it will be wrapping up around the time that this episode is posted. So we look forward to the end of the show. You know, we'll talk about that in a little bit, and we're also going to talk a little bit about the announcement that happened. You know, recent for us, but it'll be once again aged a few bit a few weeks by the time. Time this is being posted, but the announcement that Kendrick Lamar's album Damn from last year, my number one album of the year from last year, I should say, is being awarded the Pulitzer Prize. In Mine music. as well. Yeah. Hell yeah. So we're going to talk about that because we're both, we both love the album. It was our number one of last year. Now it's getting the Pulitzer. So we're going to talk about that. And Atlanta is about rap. So we thought it was a great kind of, you know, combination to kind of meld those worlds together and, you know, get talking. So let's get this conversation started with Atlanta. Yeah, what the world needs is two uh, nerdy white guys talking about black culture. Hell yeah, and we're the two white guys to do it. This is Paperboy, and you're tuned into the Fresh Mix Rap Playlist. Long live fresh. Let's do it again, and just like this time, like you're at a party and everything's crazy. <laughs> hey, man, you gotta get up. What up? You, you saying? Damn, is you the landlord or something? <laughs> Robin season. Everybody gotta eat. Hey, yo, yo, man, you just take a picture of me. robbed <laughs> all right so tom we we both kind of we both watched atlanta i'm one episode ahead of you at this point but the way we watched it kind of reversed you watched the first season as it aired i watched i, I waited i did not watch it until very recently like several weeks ago i binge watched the whole first season in anticipation of the second season about to uh, about to start so i crammed it all and you watched all of season one as it aired. I watched all of season two so far as it as aired, and you just crammed it all in. So tell me what you think about Atlanta overall. Tell me like how you're thinking about season two. Where are you standing right now? We just, you're at episode six, so you just saw Teddy Perkins. I just saw Teddy Perkins, which we will get to. I don't want to. Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll we'll get there. So tell me tell me about what you, what you're thinking so far. Well, I I view Atlanta the same way I view the TV show Fargo. Both had really fantastic, pleasantly surprisingly great first seasons, and both have second seasons that I think are are genuine game changers in television. Not just the story that they're telling, but the way they're telling them, the way they're playing with the format, uh, just the absolute lawlessness in the best way 
that the shows go about their business, the unpredictability of it. Season two of Atlanta is even better than the first man. And, and it's, it's its own thing, which is so great. We just to briefly explain the show for anyone who hasn't seen it, it centers around a guy named Ern, played by Donald Glover, who created the show, uh, writes a lot of the episodes, directs them, produces it. And his cousin, Alfred Paperboy, becomes kind of like an underground hip-hop hit in Atlanta. He has like a mixtape that kind of blows up. Ern wants to manage him. Alfred has a roommate named Darius. And uh, the story is just kind of about these three guys in Atlanta traversing the landscape from being poor and in kind of the slums of Atlanta to gaining some notoriety and fame without really getting a ton of money yet, at least from their, their art and the music. And the show is ostensibly about their journey around Atlanta and that struggle to make Paperboy a success. Yeah, so so much of the show, uh, one of the reasons the show has received so much acclaim, one of the things that surprised me so much going into the first season, I had this all these preconceived notions about the show being about, you know, the about underground rap in Atlanta. That's really what I thought the movie was going to be about, was the underground rap scene in Atlanta. And I sat down to watch it, and while there is that kind of going on in the background, the show is not a narrative show in a, any conventional sense, in that it's about Paperboy and the arc of his career and his rise to you know more and more fame. Like I, I think I was thinking maybe it was a more Atlanta inspired urban version of Entourage or something like that, you know, and but in the underground rap scene, just like all about this guy's career. And that's not what the show is at all. The show is really about this group of friends hanging out their lives together. Or I should say family, family and friends hanging out together and their lives in Atlanta and both a huge part of the show is about a being black and B being poor. Those are a huge thing that the show is about. And just because Paperboy has this big underground radio hit, he's not making any money off that. And if anything, it's screwing up his life. And he doesn't like being a big superstar. And he's not, you know, he doesn't care about his career. And Donald Glover's character is not necessarily the best manager. He's not the best equipped to get him the best gigs and doesn't know what he's doing. And so all that stuff is at play. While at the same time, you have Donald Glover who describes the show as hip-hop meets Twin Peaks, which I think is a pretty apt description in some ways because the show is very surreal at times and it, it, the tone shifts is i think what has really stood out for people um, beyond the plot you have episodes that where donald glover is the main character but he, he disappears for two or three episodes at a time in the first season you had an episode where it's just the paperboy character being interviewed on a charlie rose ish version of this black entertainment network that he's on and it's all this like fake show and this interview and it's all this comment on black culture and black entertainment and the way black people are portrayed in media and questions about the quality of music that's coming out. And you have episodes like that and then you'll have an episode that's all about Donald Glover's girlfriend and her life and her struggles with their baby that they're uh, you know going through in their relationship and it's solely focused on her and her friendships with some other woman who we haven't met that season at all and only has like one long extended 10 minute scene or something like that so the show is like structurally like the plot is not really what the show's about if you if you really want like a, a deep dive into underground hip-hop this is not that show this is a show much more about the daily lives of these characters and I love the show because it's so funny and so pointed and so angry at times and so just everything it's it's the full package that's why it's so exciting and certainly i think the one of if not the best thing on television yeah the episode you mentioned about uh paper boy giving the interview 
uh, it's an episode called BAN from uh, the first season. And I feel like Glover and Hiro Murai, who directs most of the episodes and the rest of the creative team, I feel like they took that idea and really said, let's just go all out with those type of stories for season two. Because that's really what season two feels like. I don't want to call them bottle episodes, but they're they're like self-contained solo journeys as a story. Like I just watched episodes four, five, and six of this season. One is all about Donald Glover and his on-again, off-again girl going to this German festival um, at... Like Oktoberfest thing going on, yeah. Yeah. The next episode is all about Paperboy trying to get a haircut. And the next one is all about Darius and Teddy Perkins, which we will get to for sure. But what I, yeah, you're absolutely right about this show. It's so unique and original. It's unpredictable, which is, I think it's probably its best quality. Yeah. Every week you have no idea what it's going to be about or who it's going to focus on. No idea what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah, for sure. And like it, in a narrative sense, you know, we do have some narrative momentum that's like sprinkled throughout. But if an episode ends with like, Paperboy getting his first big break or some business deal, the next episode isn't going to pick up where that story left off at all. Or it may just jump ahead in time and you realize like that that deal fell through or something. You know, like they don't they don't care about that serialization, which is so prominent in television nowadays. Even though it is a a serialized TV show, right? Yeah. Uh, what it really reminds me of is I think Twin Peaks is a perfect comparison because. As the show progresses and we get more more into Atlanta, we're starting to get these weird side characters, even just from scene to scene. Like there's that one scene, um, one of the episodes this season opens with an angry southern white lady talking about these awful lyrics that she hears in her car with her child. And instead of being like annoyed or like, oh, she doesn't get it, they love this woman because they actually get a bump and get some money off of it. And then they go to a bar to celebrate and this black bartender guy is giving him free shots, but it's really just because he wants to get put on paper bo- a track with Paperboy to the point where Donald Glover tries to intervene, and he's like, man, fuck you, dude! Like, to his own... The guy, like, who's presumably, like, Paperboy's closest ally. Yeah. You know, it's just, like, these these weird, unpredictable moments that just happen nonstop. It really reminds me of Twin Peaks, and it also reminds me a lot of Louis. Yeah, Louis, Louis yeah, that's a good comparison. I think, um, I don't know if that's intentional or not, and again, just the way the culture is right now, it's weird to like bring up a positive thing about these guys, but Louis' show, I think, for a while at least, was really groundbreaking and unique, and he really, like, he trusted his muse, you know, in a very singular way, and I feel like Donald Glover is doing something very similar. Yeah, in terms of, like, when you would watch Louis, every episode felt like, well, this could either be... You know, some seasons it was like five episodes in a row were like this like multi-hour short film that you've watched. And then the next episode would be like four very short segments that weren't related at all. And maybe ex- except for some vague themes. And then you'd have, and you know, and like Atlanta, the show could go from these very surreal, very funny, very dark moments, but then mix it with like moments of real human tenderness and real human emotion and it can just switch on a dime and it can kind of go any place and i think that's what's exciting like you said about any show it's not just like oh i don't know who the show's going to focus on every week it's like oh this show could be a slapstick surreal satire this week and then next week be a small scale human drama with these characters having these small intimate conversations 
that are feel very real and very important and heavy. So it's just, yeah, you're kind of getting everything with the show, and it's wonderful. And then it becomes a horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> out of yeah, nowhere, so, all right, you know? so w- let's also- talk about Teddy Perkins. You want to, well, you want to talk, or you want to talk about season two as a whole at this point, or what do you, what do you want to talk about? Well, I, I wanted what I wanted to talk about. I don't want to call us like outsiders watching the show, but we kind of are because Atlanta is showing us a world that we have really no familiarity with. I mean, the closest thing you and I, as people, as Phil and Tom, can come to that is when we lived in New York in Spanish Harlem for a bit. Like we got a bit of you know, being surrounded by a different culture that wasn't our own, right? But we both grew up in predominantly white suburbs, like safe neighborhoods. This is this is not a reality that we know. Like it's not it's not us. So what I'm curious about the way you view Atlanta, besides a great piece of entertainment, is do you find it at all like enlightening or um demystifying anything or is there anything about the way it is kind of portraying this aspect of black culture and a black lifestyle for you that really sticks out for me what has stuck out like obviously i'm a fan of film you know whether it's television or film or whatever i i'm a big fan of like camera work and narrative structure and so like all the kind of rule breaking it's doing there for me as just someone who consumes entertainment that is exciting even outside of whatever the content itself is Uh, anything generally that's kind of breaking those rules like the way we talked about twin peaks and the way it breaks so many narrative rules and why that was exciting for us and in, in different ways we would talk about that and so that is something that definitely appeals to me but on a deeper level I don't, like we said, or like I said, the predominant thing that the show is about is race. So much of the show is about what it is like to be black. But the thing that's, I, you know, for me is, despite the fact that, yes, I was raised very comfortably in a, you know, affluent white area and, you know, have lived a very comfortable lifestyle generally, I have been, you know, I haven't been supported a whole lot, or I shouldn't say that, that's not true. But, you know, I, I have not been like, supported by my mom the entire time or anything like that. I've been a working single father for years and I've decided for whatever reason in my life to be an artist. So that meant I, I, you know, I don't have a day job that has always paid me the best. I've struggled. I've gone years with like working shit jobs and, you know, working multiple jobs and barely getting by and you know, having tons of bills. And I, you know, I've talked about my daughter, anyone who's done the math so far, I, I had a daughter when I was really young. And so I've had to, you know, support her, you know, and so as I'm watching the show, I'm watching Ern with his daughter and, you know, the relationship with his, the, his partner slash, you know, whatever their their weird relationship is. And I really struggle. I've never been as poor as Ern is in the show. I've never been to the point where I'm like, you know, needing to live in a storage supply or anything like that. I've never been there, but I have, there are scenes like where he can't, it feels like he can't get a drink because it's so expensive or he goes out on a date and it's an expensive date and it feels like he's counting every single dollar as it's like being added to the bill like she's like oh i'm gonna order the champagne i'm gonna get some appetizers and i've like been in the same situation as Ern, where you're sitting there you're just like fuck stop ordering shit i can't spare that but i don't want to like 
tell you no because you know I want to impress you or something or like where he like goes to a restaurant gets a free cup you know he's like I'm gonna get some water and then he like goes and gets soda instead and gives somebody like a, a strange look like don't tell anybody those moments I really I've been in those moments and that's kind of where I've connected emotionally with a lot of the show and yeah so that's stuff I relate to and I've been there uh, not as hard as they've been but you know that's really worked for me and that's one thing I've connected with a lot with the show yeah, uh, it is, you know, largely about race. What I think the show does really well, though, every character is so unique and has such a different perspective. They're such fleshed out, lived in real people that it, I think a lot of shows struggle. I think I talked about it when I was talking about the death of Stalin, that Armando Iannucci yeah. film, and then kind of relating it to something like Veep, where... Characters just start to sound like each other because, yeah, normally with a movie or television show, there's one dominant voice behind it, right? Yeah. And in Atlanta, the, it's, the dominant voice is Donald Glover. And I think what the show really proves is that he's a unique talent because he is able to – and obviously you got to give credit to the actors and the staff writers and directors, everyone else involved. But what the show does incredibly well is – give every character such a distinct voice and personality that it it would be obvious if Paperboy said something that Darius would normally say. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, there's just such a lived-in, real quality to the show that really when you when you watch it, it does feel like something like Twin Peaks where you are you're just transported there for a little bit and like you just you just don't know what you're going to get. And the amount of risks that that show is taking, especially right now in season two, is kind of absurd. And you don't really see that elsewhere. Like, I know FX has a really good reputation. I know Netflix does, too, of kind of giving their creators leeway to do what they want to do. And more often than not, when you have the right talent attached, I think those networks are just proven right over and over and over again. Like the last three episodes that I watched, the ones I, I told you about, Helen Barbershop and uh, Teddy Perkins, they remind me of something like the heyday of Mad Men, you know, when they were a few seasons in and Matthew Weiner started experimenting and like having an episode about acid or telling a story out of time or telling a story that's almost like a horror film with the... Uh, the Chicago nurse murders and stuff like that, you know, and he, they were just really getting weird and expanding the story by telling stories outside of the main story, but stories that like envelop you and the characters in the world. And you just start to trust when a show gets this good, you start to trust, like, I don't care what they show me because I know what they show me is going to be interesting somehow in, in some, whether it's funny or sad or scary or whatever, you know? Yeah. Like it's just, it's a, it's a, Atlanta right now feels like a show with the guy behind it who's at like the height of his creative powers. And that's really cool when that comes along. It doesn't happen very often. Those gift cards ain't working here. I don't know. He's gonna take this shit. <laughs> Wait, what? Hell yeah. They got a no chase policy. <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, hello, sir. Uh, can I be anything today? They got a no chase policy. They can't stop me. Most of these stores got it. It's a liability thing. And even if they see me stealing, they can't chase me. Uh, sir, those shoes kind of get you a different size, or? See? He got to keep giving me great customer service. That's all he could do. Hey, excuse me, sir. Hey. 
Uh, so season two is called Robin Season, and the first two episodes open with two, with robberies. I was wondering if the whole season was going to open up with uh, a series of robberies, but that didn't end up being the case. The show has kind of had several recurring themes. The, the Robin Season, I think, is this term that is used as kind of slang in the area for it's Robin Season, it's, tor- it's, it's fall, we're getting into Christmas. So the idea is that everyone's hustling really hard, and everyone's got their own individual hustles, and they're all working them different ways. Some people are robbing, some people are, you know, having credit card scams, some people are making phone calls, selling things, you know, whatever it is, everyone's doing their own thing, trying to make more money to, you know, get presents for the holidays. Theoretically, that's the idea behind calling it Robin season. Like that idea of like, everyone's got their hustle. For me, that's been a big idea of like, a recurring idea throughout the season is looking at what everyone's trying to get and what are they trying, what are they working towards? What are they willing to do to get there? So that's been one thing. But the other thing for me really has been, I think the show is kind of a meta narrative about Donald Glover and his own conflicts with race and where he stands in the culture at times. And I think for him right now as an artist, there's been, I, I, cause I think he, you know, he came up for those who don't know about some of his early history. He, he went to NYU and he really had his breakthrough with Derek comedy. And he, well, he first got hired as a writer on the writing staff of 30 rock as he was doing a lot of that stuff while he was at NYU, he was doing Derek comedy, which was this uh, comedy troupe. They did some wacky stuff. Those were him with other white guys. He was on the, he was one of the few black guys on a predominantly white staff at 30 rock he then was cast in Community, where he was a, one of the few black characters in a predominantly white show. And he was largely associated with kind of being, you know, a safe black guy, like the polo wearing, like whatever you want to say it. Like he was not like a rapper or anything. So like when that Childish Gambino thing broke out, at first people didn't take it seriously because they're like, you're the silly, goofy guy. Like, I don't take that seriously at all. So he's really worked over the last couple of years to reform his image. Kind of, you know, he's gotten a lot more artistic with Childish Gambino. He made that like his last album, Awaken My Love, is much more sly in the family stone and very funk and soul driven. And I really like that album. I don't like his rapping all that much, but that last album I think is awesome. The show, season two, so many episodes are about there being a white element that he's afraid to embrace or afraid to let sink into his life. So whether it's being at Spotify or a Spotify like episode or like office with Paperboy and not wanting to be commodified by these or putting on a show like he looks in the office and sees you know this black guy who's dancing for everybody and you know that he's just like putting on a show for all these like white executives who are acting hip and have these like horrible email names and stuff like that so it's about him like being afraid of that and feeling very isolated from it and also like the Oktoberfest episode where he kind of goes into this very surreal, like horrifying, like white culture that's very strange and like kind of, and it's, it's very close to, you know, German kind of that polka type thing, you know, and it's, it's a sillier version of that. But, you know, like a big part of the season so far for me that I've observed has been that fear of losing your black identity to whiteness or selling out or um, all that. And I think that, really emerges in the Teddy Perkins episode because what better representation of a black man being absorbed by white culture and losing his racial identity than Michael Jackson. And that's really what this episode, it's kind of like uh, the get out version of Michael Jackson's final days. Yeah. I guess we can just go straight in. I have a couple thoughts about Donald Glover as well, but we should, I can bring him up after because we need to talk about Teddy Perkins. It is so weird. Yeah, let's talk about Teddy Perkins as played by Donald Glover. Yeah, which I did not realize 
Did you know that? I, right I knew it right away, but uh, Twitter had spoiled that for me. I had seen a picture on Twitter. That's all I knew about the episode was I had seen a picture of him, and I knew Donald Glover pl- was in whiteface throughout the episode. That's all I knew going in. But I didn't want to spoil so that for you. I did you. not yeah. know. I was, I was going to ask you yeah, if you knew I that, but that, I, didn't, I didn't ask you because I wasn't sure if you knew. Based purely on the performance, I did not pick up that it was Donald Glover until I think like something in his eyes kind of tipped me off. And I'm like, wait, is that Donald Glover? I heard it the most in his voice. So the episode is basically the whole plot is Darius, um, Lakeith Stanfield's character, he reads on a message board that some rich dude wants to give away his multicolored piano. It's like this old school piano where all the keys have been painted a different color, almost like a rainbow color. And he likes it and it's free if you're willing to go pick it up. Yeah. So he runs a U-Haul and he goes to this mansion and he's greeted by Teddy Perkins, which is this really creepy, short, old white man. Almost looks like he's wearing a mask because his plastic surgery has been so horrible. He's got this like high, lilting voice. And he basically just keeps Darius there. And, is, and for whatever reason, is just trying to stall him over and over again. And you find out that this white guy, Teddy Perkins, uh, as he's eating an ostrich egg. Horrifying. That seems so disgusting. Yes. It's so weird, but he has a, a brother who's black named Benny, who is this like piano, like virtuoso pianist, right? Yeah. Worked with Stevie Wonder and Ahmad Jamal and all these great artists. And it was his piano that they're giving away. Benny has this rare condition where he can't see sunlight. They make like a Sammy Sosa joke, which if anybody knows, uh, Sammy Sosa was this dark skinned baseball player in the 90s who is now almost completely pale to nearly looking albino. And it's this weird odyssey where Darius is stuck in this mansion. He goes through this makeshift gift shop. He hears Teddy Perkins talking to himself. He's telling him weird stories, but he doesn't want to leave because he wants to get the piano. He somehow ends up in the basement of the house, and there's poor Benny with a full mask on, stuck in a wheelchair, And he basically warns him, like, Teddy's going to try to murder us both. Go get the gun. He doesn't. And it ends horribly, tragically. Like, really, really sad ending. And it's just, yeah, it's this weird mix of a commentary on how isolating fame can be. Uh, It it feels not only like an homage to Get Out, but very meta in a way, since Lakeith Stanfield himself was in Get Out. It almost felt at first like a prequel to like what maybe happened to his character or something like that. It's just a super unique, uh, bizarre episode. But anyway, the, so I think I noticed it in the eyes, like midway through the episode, that maybe that was Donald Glover. But his performance is so great, I did not pick up on it. And I thought it was interesting because they cut to Darius calling Paperboy at a fast food restaurant, saying like, yeah, this guy won't let me leave. I think he's stalling. And Donald Glover's in the back seat, and he like doesn't say a word. And the episode before was the barbershop episode, which follows Paperboy around the whole time. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting that Donald, the creative force behind the show, would just like write him out of two straight episodes, you know, in a shortened season. But no, sure enough, he's Teddy Perkins, the most memorable character probably in the history of Atlanta. But yeah, that episode, the episode's so uncomfortable and horrifying. And like I said, it's kind of commenting on multiple things. And it's obviously about... I, I like what you said about the how isolating fame is because that's definitely something that's been happening to Paperboy. Uh, he's been selling drugs, and because he makes 
almost all of his money by selling drugs. He hasn't made much money off of his... He's starting to, actually. In season two, he's starting to make more money off of the rap stuff. But predominantly, he's made his money as a drug dealer, and that's how he wants to keep making his money. But he's in this weird middle place where he's not famous enough to be making money off the music, but he's too famous to you know, show his face at, like, every drug dealer's house anymore. So, like, he himself has had this hard time accepting the fame. And this, you know, like I said, when he goes to, like, the Spotify-ish, you know, streaming offices and they want him to do a concert in front of all the people and it's just this, like, bored white guy eating a banana, Ooh. you know, like, and he's like, oh, fuck, so yeah, he's awful. like, fuck this, I'm not going to be your your puppet up here, like, just doing this for this, you know, this bored staff. You know, I feel like that that's a lot of what, Paperboy himself is struggling with. And I think that's why, you know, or what makes the show so interesting is it's both commenting on a macro level thing about race and, you know, this losing your racial identity, but also, uh, you know, fame. But it's also commenting, even though it feels totally separate from the overall narrative, thematically it wraps in with what the rest of the season's been talking about. So, like, when you step back from the season as a whole, even though not every episode has been. In, plot-wise intricately linked it all feels like of a piece and, it, and the season feels great as a whole this teddy perkins feels almost like a warning sign but it's also interesting because with paperboy you can see him in this season in particular be really on guard and defensive when a stranger recognizes him because what we've seen in the show predominantly is whenever someone recognizes him they want something from him like it's usually like yo get me on your your next mix or put me on or something, you know, like an autograph or whatever. But like no one, no one, no one's really approaching him just like as a pure fan who's like grateful for the work or appreciative or whatever. And it's really, it really seems to be having a negative impact on Paperboy. And uh, we can get into that more when we talk about Kendrick Lamar, because I think that's a huge theme of damn. It's a lot about not being able to trust people with Teddy Perkins. So let me ask you the end of Teddy Perkins, right? So spoilers, obviously. Teddy Perkins, he gets the gun before Darius can get it at Benny's uh, suggestion. And he makes Darius handcuff him. And he says, you're going to be my sacrifice to make the break-in look believable. So I'm of two minds. Do you think Benny, or I'm sorry, do you think Teddy Perkins was planning a murder-suicide? Or do you think he was using this as a way to get back in the spotlight of fame? I read it more as a murder suicide. Like he's just finally lost his rocker. But yeah, yeah. I, I didn't read it as as quite as you know thematically resonant as all that. But you know, not not to say that it's not there. It's it's an interesting thought. So yeah, another thing I really liked about this episode is that it is bookended by two Stevie Wonder songs and Teddy Perkins. He's uh, made Darius handcuff himself. He's basically going to frame him for a robbery gone wrong, presumably, I guess, to kill Benny and himself, finally, which ends up happening anyway. This, there's this whole story that uh, Teddy Perkins is telling Darius while he's basically keeping him there, talking about his father, and he's got, like, a, a creepy shrine to his dad, saying that his father would, like, hit himself and Teddy and Benny if they weren't playing piano enough or well enough, and that Teddy was so grateful because it made him as great as... They were as musicians, which is obviously throwing huge shade at Michael Jackson's dad. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's exactly, exactly like Michael Jackson, yeah. Yeah, um, and just how it, like, yeah, it made you a great artist who will be remembered, but at what cost, you know? And he talks about how all this great art and music was born out of pain, 
And even while Darius, a really beautiful moment, actually, like maybe one of the most humanizing moments Darius has ever had, he's being, he's handcuffing himself. And he's like, you know, not all of that, that great art can come from pain. A lot of it can come from love. And he brings up Stevie Wonder and they have this whole conversation about how like Stevie had his own sacrifice about how he was blind, but he wasn't blinded. You know, he saw through his music. It's really poetic, beautiful stuff. But you just tell at that point that Darius is, or that, I'm sorry, that Teddy is too far gone and it's too late. You know, um, not all great things come from great pain. Sometimes it's love. Not everything's a sacrifice. Sacrifice is unnecessary, Darius. Yeah, maybe. But your dad should have said sorry. I'm sorry. Shit. I went through daddy shit myself. When you're young, you try to just make it be okay and say everything's gonna be fine, and it's just, you don't know the difference, but that don't give you an excuse to grow up and repeat the same shit over and over. It's like there's a, this what if factor. What if you would have been great at something else? Or if you would have seen love instead of all the other shit, like, like Stevie. I would say they even have that argument or little discussion about the merits of hip-hop because Teddy doesn't think hip-hop is a, a real art form and hasn't truly reached the peaks of something like pop music. And Darius has a response to him about, you know, like sometimes people just want to have fun and it's, it's okay that it's not always the most artistic and sometimes it's dumb and silly. Like, and you know, like he really defends it. And I think that's... He defends it in what I thought was a really intelligent way because I think he's undermining hip-hop a little bit by saying, you know, sometimes people just want to have fun. Basically, Teddy says it never grew out of its adolescence. Which is not true. When we talk about Kendrick Lamar, we'll obviously see that that's not true. Right. And I think, I think Darius would agree that that's not true either. So I think that was actually a really diplomatic way to defend it without just outright saying you're wrong and this is why, you know? I think what he's saying there is like, you know, maybe you're not wrong, but I don't think that's bad sort of thing. It was actually very, it was just like a a good highlight into Darius's, I think, intelligence that can be hidden, but he, he almost feels like a savant in a lot of ways on that show. Like he seems like a brilliant guy, but he's just so weird. But yeah, um, the, the song, the show ends after this uh, murder suicide, this tragic thing that Darius survives and the police have showed up. And they bookend it with another Stevie Wonder song called Evil, which is a really sad Stevie Wonder piano ballad about, you know, like, why is evil uh, inflicted so many minds and so many hearts? And why do so many men carry evil with them? And it's uh, it's it's a really interesting episode. I feel like I don't know, but I would assume that Michael Jackson is a huge influence on Donald Glover musically, you know, like, like everyone. A, yeah. He, Don, yeah, Donald Glover, but he also, Donald Glover seems like he's of the age where, you know, I think he's around our age, maybe a little older, but he probably idolized MJ as much or as probably way more than I did. And I was a huge Michael Jackson fan, yeah. you know, despite all of Jackson's crazy issues and faults, his life is, is really tragic. Ultimately, this was a really, this is a really creative way to, I think, discuss that this episode kind of wrapping up that's why the show is exciting is because it can have a such a a standalone episode like this that still feels of a piece with the show even though it's completely different from anything that's ever been on the show before uh it's it's really interesting unique 
must see television at this point. I'm so I'm very excited to yeah. see how the season wraps up as a whole. You know, I'm sorry we're recording this early, guys. Well, you know, maybe we'll check back in. When maybe we'll just have a, a recap of like, hey, what the hell happened in the last four weeks when you when you get back? You know, we'll, we'll yeah. talk maybe like the Avengers or something like that because we we won't have a chance to really do a full review of that. Yeah, I agree. We can um, we can catch up at the end of Atlantic because it's a great show. And you know, Phil and I have been critical of things we've talked about in the past. This is a full blown. How's that day recommendation? Watch Atlanta. Go, go, go. Watch Atlanta. All right. And now to keep those recommendations going, I'm going to throw on a track right now from Kendrick Lamar's Damn. I'm going to bump that this second because that's a huge, huge, huge recommendation from us. And as we're going to discuss here in a second, the fucking Pulitzer Prize people. I got, I got, I got, I got loyalty, got royalty inside my DNA. Cocaine quarter piece, got war and peace inside my DNA. I got power, poison, pain, and joy inside my DNA. I got hustle, though, ambition flow inside my DNA. I was born like this, and born like this, immaculate conception. I transformed like this, performed like this, was yells you a new weapon. I don't contemplate, I meditate, then off your fucking head. This that put the kids to bed. This that I got, I got, I got, I got realness. I just first of all kendrick lamar winning a pulitzer is uh, the thing that's a big deal about that is it's the first time hip-hop a hip-hop album has ever done that it's a pulitzer for music this stuff's usually reserved for very very snooty brand of music so well hold on yeah let me cut you off it's not just the first hip-hop album to win the pulitzer it's the first non-jazz, non-classical album to win the Pulitzer. Yeah, so it's it's a big it's deal. It's been jazz and classical music, and now it's Kendrick Lamar. He, like he's in a category all of his own. Oh yeah, and so like let's talk a little bit about why that is. Because if you're not a fan of hip hop, you might be like, you know, you might have heard a song or two of his and been like, he seems like everybody else. Like, why is this guy such a big deal now? I, I want to start by um, I'm going to read what the Pulitzer board wrote. Sure. Um, you know, just a snippet. I haven't heard it, so let's hear it. They they awarded the Pulitzer to Dam in music. Uh, again, the first not only hip-hop album, but it's, it's always been classical or jazz before to win the Pulitzer for music. They wrote that Dam is a virtuosic song collection unified by its vernacular authenticity and rhythmic dynamism that offers affecting vignettes capturing the complexity of modern African-American life. Bam! That sums it up perfectly. That's a, that's a mouthful. Yeah. Uh, it does, but it doesn't. So I think they're right, but they, they talk about... What would you add? Well, they talk about summing up modern African-American life, but I think it's... I think it's... This one is a little more specific than that. I think it's a lot more about fame and how it relates to a specific modern American African-American life, and that's Kendrick's. I mean, I know it's not... I think he does a great job of mixing fact with fiction in all of his work, but this one, this one in particular, I think, is really about him having ascended to, like, the, the top of the hill in the hip-hop community. Like, I think this, I think Dam is about him knowing how good, not only good, but how successful he has become and how he's trying to deal with that warts and all, you know? So my relationship with Kendrick was, I have a friend named Joey, who you've met. And Joey is a massive, massive, massive hip-hop head. He knows everything. He listens to all the underground stuff. And he's always kind of been my go-to in terms of like, hey, what's going on right now? Like, the I recommended Flatbush Zombies on the show. 
a couple weeks ago. He's the one who told me about Flatbush Zombies. He's the one who, and I, I, by the way, side note, that full album did come out. It's great. And I've already discussed it with him. And he's like, that is the album of the year. It's a masterpiece. So like, if you're into hip hop, go pick up that. So back onto this, onto this, he told me years ago when Section 80 had come out, that's when he sat me down. He's like, dude, you have got to, you've got to hear this. Like he literally grabbed me and took me to his car so he could play it for me. That's how excited he was by it. So I heard section 80 when that came out and it was great and I really liked it. But you know, like knowing about him, it wasn't really till good kid, mad city came out that I was really like, Oh yeah, this is, this is great stuff. So that album comes out and it's one of the, like the biggest hip hop debuts. Like it's one of the most critically raved about albums of the year. One of the most critically re well received hip hop albums in, over the last few years. And people just, uh, it's got a few hits on it. And what's great about it is it's this, it's a storytelling album that's kind of in many ways doing the exact same things Dam is doing, but on a, you know, just in a little bit more specific of a way. Because for me, Good Kid Mad City is about the specific life details of him growing up in Compton and being a teenager in Compton and the day-to-day -day life of just being a kid and that's very much what that album is about and through his day-to-day -day struggles and his attitude you get a bigger sense of the larger problems plaguing the african-american community so he makes an album like that and then the next album he steps it up with to pimp a butterfly which is a much bigger version of what he was trying to do on the first album it's this hugely political hugely ambitious album in terms of the lyrics he's going to be singing more he's going to be doing you know different voices that he hasn't tried before but also sonically it's not going to be as um urban or as street inspired as the last album it's going to be more jazz influenced it's going to be more funk influenced it's going to be incorporating freeform poetry readings you know stuff it's going to have everything in there so it's a very ambitious critically raved about album it was you know nominated for a shit ton of grammys and, you know, and then he releases Damn, which is his third album. And I will say that To Pimp a Butterfly, as well-received as it was, was I struggled with it a little bit because I think I was so thrown by it, uh, the sound of it, and some things with his voice I wasn't sure I was on the same page with him on. And I have since, over the last several years, really grown to enjoy it. It just took me some time. And, you know, it's it's okay if, if I don't love it because, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a you know, a white guy from Ohio. Like, it's okay. This isn't necessarily for me, you know, at all times. So it's okay if I don't love everything or don't feel like I understand everything that he's doing at all times. So, uh, you know, for him, w what my concern with him was at a certain point was he was getting so political on To Pimp a Butterfly that he released Untitled as well, uh, like a series of, like, tracks that he had just wrapped on and not finished. And they were all very serious and very political. And I was like, you know, I can admire the technical skill here, but I'm not sure that like the songs are a lot of fun. And I think what made damn so incredible for me was like, I was like, holy shit, he made an album that is fun and very, you know, very easy to listen to. These are quick, easy songs with great melodies, great hooks. And he's also like technically the, the, the speed at which he's rapping, the subject matter that he's rapping about, like the, the cleverness of the, of the wordplay. It's just all, he, he's, it's all to the next level. So for me, like, damn, when I heard it, like blew me away. And I was like, this is the best thing he's ever made. So like I, it was my number one of the album, uh, number one album of last year. And I still listen to it constantly. You know, there's Kendrick and then there's, I think it's one of his original monikers is K dot. And there's all this discussion about damn being a little more of the K dot coming out of Kendrick, like that, that kind of rougher, meaner 
more aggressive lyrical approach that you know this is definitely the the rappiest i guess of his three major releases you know it's like pretty pretty like streamlined in that way yeah there's a couple songs like yeah where he's whatever kind of half singing or something but yeah he's doing some pretty fast hard rapping on this album yeah like on like on dna and obviously on humble what i really think separates this album there's an instrumental hip-hop album by jay dilla called donuts which phil knows means a lot to me i was listening to that two nights ago and thinking of it as i listen yeah to. it's it's absolutely brilliant front to back and what it does is it, it's circular in nature so the the album has a real theme um, uh an idea that you can take home and kind of really ponder the beginning starts the end ends and it's it's the same way you know it completes a circle what Dam does is tell this really interesting story from beginning to end that you can then reverse and understand it the other other way. So, like, what Kendrick did is he released this last spring. And then I think in December, he released the collector's edition for Dam, yeah. which is the entire album, but but flipped, reversed. Yes. And it wasn't, it wasn't until he came out with that, I'll be completely honest, I really enjoyed Dam for months. Listened to it a lot, bumped a lot of tracks, really got into it. But then when that came out, I remember thinking like, oh, what's, why did he do this? Like, there's nothing new, no bonus tracks, but obviously there's a reason, right? So I really started kind of studying what the purpose was and I realized what he was going for. And it's the reverse of the story he's telling on the album. And that really completed the album for me in a way where I thought beyond like, oh, this is just really great lyricism, really fun beats. He's got a great style that I appreciate to like, this is such a, a whole complex story that's just so full of metaphor, so full of his own personal struggles, so honest in a really beautiful way. I wouldn't, I don't, I don't know if he would call himself religious, but he's a very spiritual person. Yeah. And this whole album is about, going through this this like really fast track to superstardom and losing himself and trying to find himself and like reaffirm his spirituality and his place with God. There are so many allusions to, to biblical texts throughout and old literature throughout. I, I think even damn is a play on being damned. You know, he talks about his his sinful nature and how he wonders if he can get out of it. He talks about the guilt he has of a life lived where he's gotten away with maybe some really horrible shit. He's also talked about, you know, the the pride that he feels of knowing he's the greatest rapper alive and wanting to just like crush people, you know, yeah. like he he really goes all out in the lyrics of this album until you hit that track right in the middle, that big single, Humble, and then things change. And what the, the collector's edition does, the, the original release of Damn, it starts with like this big bombastic, you know, I'm this megastar, I could, I could kill people's careers with a line, with a verse. And then Humble hits, and it gets much quieter and introspective, and back to the guy who just who wants to do good and be good, right? Yeah. And then you flip it around, and the album starts that way, with the final track, Duckworth, which is a true story about this guy who became almost like a surrogate second father to him. Like, yeah, the, a gangster, yeah, like 
almost killed his dad yeah, or something. Yeah. This 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 guy, yeah, he he almost murdered his dad, and through some act, he still robbed the place, but he didn't kill his dad. And they ended up becoming super close, and um, him and Kendrick like formed a really sh- strong relationship. And I think that clearly affected him, and he talks about it a lot. So the collector's edition starts with that idea. So it, it goes back almost more to his humbler beginnings. And then you hit Humble, and instead of the original track listing telling himself to calm the fuck down and be humble, it's more about the idea of it becomes almost more like a diss track, you know? Yeah. And then he 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 rockets to the superstardom. So beyond the actual music itself and the lyrics, what he did there, like when when that was revealed to me uh, through some of some help from Kendrick himself releasing it for stupid people like me who maybe didn't get it right away, really brought home like. What a brilliant work of art this whole thing is, you know, beyond the individual track to track enjoyment that I got out of it. Yeah. And you have like a couple of tracks I would highlight. I mean, depending on which version for in the regular version, they're late in the album. But you have what I was because I was listening to the album today and two tracks that have always been my favorite is Triple X and Fear. I was thinking about sonically what's so interesting about the album is, you know, he'll be talking about at one point in Triple X, he gets he starts talking about please shootings and police uh killing black men or black boys you know young black men in hoods whatever and he's talking about that and as he's rapping at a rapid face or rapid pace about that the the sound effect going on is a siren and it's like this you know it's like a a wooing siren and it gives you the unmistakable impression that he's giving you that he's trying to remind you of the police and it's so even though it's like this great beat and it works within the beat of being this amazing, like intense music, you know, sonic, ex- sonic experience, but it also emotionally works on you. Cause you, you know, it's just like constant, like it's reinforcing the visuals that he's giving you. And it's like stuff like that. That's so beautiful. And a track like fear where I think lyrically it's incredible where he's talking about the personal fears that he, you know, is going through and the fears that he lives with every day, walking down the street and how those fears represent the fears of, black community as a whole and you know it's just such a wonderful work of art and i mean we could you know probably talk about it all day you know everyone gets the impression it won the pulitzer prize for a reason you should definitely check it out it's an incredible piece of work you know anything else you want to say about damn or kendrick or yeah i mean i would want i want to talk about this forever kind of fear is a great track i think it's his most uh it's maybe him at his most vulnerable in the entire album yeah uh feel is another one that's like that uh pride is another one like that but you know in fear in particular duckworth the the title track guy from the final song he's actually in the in the track like leaving a voicemail and yeah the idea that that black people kind of carry a curse on them is kind of prevalent in a lot of tracks throughout the album and in past tracks that kendrick lamar has put out this idea of needing to like break through is very prevalent with him and it's it's sad and he he's very open about it what i really like about the album or one of the many things i like about the album is that like the flipping of the album thing the the middle of the track the middle of the album is uh track seven out of 14 is pride and then humble comes next and when you flip it humbles first and then pride is next and it's they're the inverse of each other you know right he's this very yeah. spiritual religious guy he has a song called yah which is obviously about yahweh uh, he talks about Yeshua, which is the Hebrew word for God, and pridefulness is the the inverse of humbleness. You know, like pride is the the ugliest of the seven deadly sins, and humbleness is the the virtuosic 
inverse of pride. And there are just so many, like, for, for an album that's so heavy, so deep, so complex, you can read so many things into it. Kendrick also just has, like, such playfulness in his writing that I think if you're just a total nerd, it's, like, really fun to dive into and try to understand more. And... Yeah, man, he's just—he's got so many—he's got so many good lines throughout. I, we we don't have time to talk about all of them, but I will—I want to ask if we—if you want to wrap this up a little bit, which I know it's getting late. If you had to pick th- top three tracks, what do you go with? Um, off the top of my head, I would say the first things that pop in my head were DNA. The the three, the two of that I mentioned, Triple X and. Fear and DNA would probably be my other one, but I, I have a hard time leaving off because uh, I think those are just technically the most like they they illustrate the the qualities that I love the most about the record. But I would also point to Love, which I actually think is the song I've listened to the most on the album. I think it's such a beautiful song, so catchy, and I love the like groove of it and the beat, and it's romantic and emotionally available. And like you said, it's in the second half of the album after he's kind of humbled himself and he's being more available emotionally than most rappers usually let themselves be. And I think it's a, it works as a great pop love song, and it's a, a fun rhythm, and I, I it's one of my favorite tracks on the album even though it's not one of the more technically you know masterful tracks it's just an enjoyable one that i love yeah he um the second half yeah he talks about his need for love uh the fears that he's had which he talks about like his need for god to like find god again he also the running theme throughout the whole album we touched a little bit about it when i was talking about atlanta but this idea that he has a really hard time connecting with people like he can only trust himself he's he's been screwed over too many times or he's at this point in fame where he doesn't know people's motives you know and he meets somebody new and there's this idea i think throughout the album like obviously on the track loyalty with rihanna but the idea of like i'd rather have you be loyal to me than even like me you know like you don't have to love me you don't have to be my best friend but if I know you're loyal, then you're good because I don't know who I can trust. And the only person I can truly trust is myself. And even that's tough because I know I'm a sinner. I know I do fucked up shit. I know I get in my own way. And it's just this guy just struggling so, so, so much. Yeah, when you can just when you can just lay your, your insecurities and your faults bare like that and are able to, to put it out in such a creative, unique, playful way, like, dude... I, I, I saw I've I've seen some people online talk about, you know, like the Pulitzer for music is now meaningless because Kendrick Lamar won it, which makes me think Fuck them. Num- well, not only fuck them, but number one, since when did you give a shit about the Pulitzer for music? Like could you exactly. name the last ten Pulitzer for music winners? No, you can't. And then there's this all like there's this idea still that like Teddy Perkins talks about it a little bit, but in a more intellectual way, like that just this like total dismissal of rap right yeah and these like old dudes and then they go and listen to the fucking lemon song by led zeppelin again which is just about like fucking cum running down your leg you know like yeah it's not like the stuff that they're listening to is is all this highbrow and i love led zeppelin i'm not knocking led zeppelin the led zeppelin's a shit but the idea that like like black people in rap can't talk about these materialistic or you know uh, less complex ideas and it's just like you're able to dismiss a whole genre when you have someone like Kendrick Lamar or Eminem in his heyday or Tupac or Biggie just talk like 
talking about what's really going on in the world, you know, like Gangstar talking about like the problems of being black in New York in the eighties and yeah, like just telling life stories, man, like rap, rap at its best is just like the best storytelling that, that goes on in music. And if you really look at damn now and study, like go download the genius app and like read all of those lyrics and read the background or whatever, whenever a lyric is started, which right now I'm like this, which is so popular. It's literally like every line and you just start reading them out of context. And that's like, damn is some of the best poetry you'll read right now. You know, like it's incredibly thoughtful and really heartfelt and eye opening in a lot of ways. Like there's just so much, it's such a dense album for an album that I feel like was made in a way to be a little more streamlined versus something like to pimp a butterfly, which you were talking about being, you know, like a, a kind of a towering achievement, but maybe a little more difficult to get into and understand. And maybe it doesn't have the replay value where you could just like put it on all the time. Yeah. Know? It's like an hour and a half long. It's, it's an, it's a, yeah. a much more demanding experience. So that's part of what makes damn so incredible is that it's so heavy and, you know, versatile in its sound, but also, you know, it, the songs are like two and a half, three minutes a lot, and they're they're you know they're easy listening. Yeah, the the whole album's under an hour. You can you can really get what you want at a damn. Like you can listen to it front to back. You can listen to it back to front. You can really sit down and analyze every line he says, or you can be like Darius and just put it on to have fun. Like it works in every single way. You know, absolutely, it's really a masterpiece. It's a it's a amazing accomplishment he deserves whatever award anyone would want to give him including the pulitzer give him the fucking nobel peace press i probably die anonymous i probably die with promises i probably die walking back home from the candy house i probably die because these colors are standing out i probably die because i ain't know the markets were snitching I probably die at these house parties fucking with bitches. I probably die from witnesses leaving me foster cues. I probably die from thinking that me and your hood was cool. Or maybe die from pressing the line, acting too extra. Or maybe die because these smokers are more than desperate. I probably die from one of these bats and blue badges. Body slammed in black and white paint, my bones snapping. Or maybe die from panic or die from being too lax. Or die from waiting on it. Die All right, Tom, that is the show for this week. You have got to go, you know, get on an airplane and go on a secret trip that I'm excited for you to go on. So we will be reporting back here in a few weeks. We're going to catch up. We're going to, you know, start to talk about some other things. We're going to talk some more music. We're going to talk some more movies. We're going to talk about all kinds of stuff. I'm excited. Well, do you have any uh, any closing things we want to rant about or recommend? I, you know, I said on the last episode that I wanted to, you know, complain about something. So I was thinking, what can I complain about? And I remembered... Here's a, here's a rant. Here's a random, just like something that bugs me that I saw today that I, always bothers me when I see it. I went to the gym today, and I, I never pick on anyone at the gym. I, I have this theory that, like, look, if you see someone at the gym who's like looks uncomfortable or is, you know, bigger or something like that and out of shape, like, don't make fun of them because, like, they're at the gym, and they're obviously there because they understand that they're out of shape or they're, you know, and they're doing the work, and, like, you should be They're trying. You're, yeah. If you make fun of people at the gym, you're a monster. Absolutely. So that's a, that is my policy. I do not make fun of people at the gym. That said, when I see people at the gym on treadmills or working out wearing jeans, I get fucking so annoyed. I'm like, go take your jeans off. I don't know what it is. I understand that you don't need to be wearing like sweatpants or shorts to like lift weights. I understand that it's not an essential element. You can do it in jeans. 
Like, and people can should be able to wear what they want. But for some reason, I see them and I just want to fucking yank them off their off their fucking asses and just be like, "Come on, you know, go go put some gym clothes on, goddammit. You you know, wear appropriate attire." Are people actually running? Are they running in the jeans or just walking on a treadmill? I've seen uh, um, some speed walking. I would say the worst thing I ever saw, and I wanted to go like tell this person just to leave. I was like, "You're done." And it, it was this guy who was on a treadmill speed walking in jeans with a Dr. Pepper, a, a bottle of Dr. Pepper. <laughs> and I, I wanted to, I walked up to him, or I wanted to walk up to him and just be like, come on, man. You're like, you're, you're, what do you think you're doing here? Little do you know, he has like a great reason. Like, look, man, I'm taking care of my sick family and this is just the only hour I get to myself. So I feel like I should be at least a little active, but I'm so tired that I need a like, Dr. Oh, Pepper. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> You know, yeah. I I, uh, I just realized I'm a total hypocrite. I don't. I agree with you. My it's actually a lesson my dad taught me when I was younger. Um, I've always been kind of a heavier guy, and I go to the gym as much as I can on and off throughout my adult life. But my dad said uh, he was like, you know, when I'm ever at the gym and I see like a 400 pound guy on the treadmill, he's like, I respect those guys almost more than I respect the bodybuilders lifting weights again for the millionth time. You know, because the idea yeah. to like to put yourself out there when you've led a life that's so unhealthy for you and to really make the effort to go out there and try to better yourself is I think like one of the most noble things you can do, at least personally, you know? Hell yeah. And that when my, my dad told me that when I was a sarcastic little shitty teenager and that always stuck with me. So yeah, if you go to the gym, if you're listening to this and you haven't been to the gym in a while, or if you've never gone and you wanted to go to the gym, try it out. Uh, you'll feel better. Yeah, but just don't wear jeans and drink Dr. Pepper. No, and don't be super old and use the machine wrong because I will I will laugh about that. Yeah, and wipe the fucking machine down. Don't be gross. Come wipe on, Wipe the that machine a... down. I agree. It's disgusting. All right. Well, do you have anything? You have anything to rant or rave about or you know recommend? No rant, but uh, since you know this is one of the rare episodes where we didn't talk about a movie, I would like to recommend a new movie that we probably won't have time to talk about. Saw it in theaters this week. It's called The Endless. It's by uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. They're the guys who did uh, the movie Spring, which is a really unique kind of like horror romance movie about a, a guy in the U.S. who travels to Europe and falls in love with a woman who turns out to be some type of monster. They also did this uh, super low-budget indie horror movie called Resolution, which is about a guy who takes his junkie friend to the woods to try to get him sober and shit goes haywire. The Endless is about... I remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. They're really they're really interesting um, indie filmmakers. I believe this is their third, at least bigger feature, including Resolution and Spring. The Endless is about these two brothers, um, played by the directors, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, who left a cult when they were young. They ran away. And one of the two brothers kind of regrets it. And they get this weird video message from the cult basically implying like the end times of what we're here to do is probably coming upon us. So the brother who never really wanted to leave convinces the other brother to go back for a night just to like say goodbye and see how everyone's doing. And lo and behold, stuff gets really weird. I won't say anything more because I don't want to spoil it because uh, what I really like about these guys even though their films all have their own little flaws, um, they're super indie. Like you can tell, they do all this stuff themselves. But like Atlanta, in a smaller scale, they're very unique and unpredictable in a cool way. Like I really don't know 
what's going to happen from moment to moment in their movies. And I think The Endless is uh, a further progression in that way. And I think it's also their best movie so far. I think they keep improving. So those guys are two filmmakers to watch. They're very creative, uh, unique artists in the field right now. And I don't know how big a release The Endless is going to get. I don't know if it's just the New York and L.A. thing. But, you know, it's one of those that will definitely be available to run on iTunes probably within a month or two if it's not already out. And if you want um, a cool kind of like cult-type story that's also part sci-fi, part horror, um, part family drama, I I recommend checking it out. It's a good one. All right, man. That sounds great. I'll check that out. I hadn't heard of it. Definitely check it out. And uh, I will say it ties in with Resolution a little bit, actually. So if... If you haven't seen Resolution and is always meant to, have always meant to, I think it's still on Netflix. That's how I saw it anyway. Check out Resolution. Cool. It's a cool little movie. Awesome. All right. Well, that's the show for this week. Please make sure you subscribe to the show, rate us, and review us on uh, iTunes. And, you know, every one of those helps us out. It, it, you know, helps us get the word out for the show. So please do that. Give, help, help feed our egos. Give us five stars. Tell us how great we are. We need it. Or else, you know... We'll fall into a deep depression. Thank you, Zach Pitts, for the theme music for the show, the music you hear at the beginning and ending of every single episode. Thank you, Zach. It gives it, makes us feel like a real show in my mind. So without yeah, that, we, yeah, really, it really lends us some some more credibility because that we certainly lack. And uh, you know, you can come <laughs> find us on Twitter. Tell us what you think of the show. Tell us what you think of us. You know, hit us up with questions. Whatever you want to do, you can find Tom at Big Fat Bond. That's all one word. And you can find me by typing Phil Wiedenheft into the search. You can find the spelling for that in the show notes. Tom, I will not be seeing you next week, but in podcast time, I will be. So I hope everyone enjoys the episodes we've released over the last couple of weeks. We will be catching up after this episode. So, Tom, have a great trip. I will talk to you when you get back. Thank you, buddy. We will be in touch. Go Celtics. All right. I'll see you, man. Later. Later.